Hello and welcome to the Harvest Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We are honored that you would click on this and listen to God's Word preached by one of our elders. At the same time, we strongly affirm the biblical mandate for Christians to be a faithfully active and in-person part of their local church. This sermon cannot and will not replace what a local church can provide to the life of a Christian. That being said, we hope that this sermon challenges and encourages you in your faith and that it builds upon the faithful ministry of your local church. We hope that you enjoy. God bless. And God willing, next week be on to my very favorite miracle where Jesus turns water into wine. For 2,000, well, say for 200 years, Baptists has been trying to turn that back into water. I'll give you a second. Uh, John chapter 1. You take your eyes and go down to verse 45. As you find your place, let me ask you a question. Do you know where heaven and earth intersect? Could you explain that to somebody if you do? Could you explain to an unbeliever or maybe even a Christian? Where it is, heaven and earth intersect. Could you also explain why you come to church? What it is that we do here? Why it is that we assembled on this Lord's Day? With those questions in mind, let us look. John chapter 1, verse 45. Jesus, after... John the Baptist has pointed a couple of his disciples toward Jesus, and now uh, Jesus has found Philip, and Philip is now on his way to find his friend Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus. In verse 45, we pick it up. Philip found Nathaniel, said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good? Come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Might be one thing to find uh, something good out of Nazareth. Might be something else to find an Israelite with no deceit. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Truly, truly. Now, Truly, truly is the word, word truly is the word amen. When do we usually say amen? When you agree with something at the end, right? You don't say amen. Uh, <laughs> what if before I got up to preach, you just start saying amen? That'd be kind of odd, wouldn't it? Um, that'd, be, that'd be weird because even in the synagogue in the day, in Jesus' day, um, the, the priests or the people in the audience or the elders would stand up after the speaker if they agreed and say, amen, amen, we agree with that. That's a good word. But Jesus uses amen, amen before he talks. 
Amen, amen, I'm about to say something, and you don't get the opportunity to run it through your brain whether or not it's true or not. I'm saying it is true, and you need to listen to it. Not just once, but twice. Amen, amen, truly, truly. What is it behind this truly, truly statement? You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did Jesus mean by that? What did Jesus, why did he tell Nathaniel, you will see heaven open and you will see angels ascending? What, what is he talking about? Flip with me to Genesis chapter 28. Now, uh, if you're new here this morning visiting, uh, just know we just went through Genesis and somehow the one who assigns the scriptures to be preached, that would be this guy, he skipped, not on purpose, but he left out Genesis 28. Well, we thought we'd just go back and hit it today, uh, not on design, but by God's word. So uh, let's go to Genesis 28. God would have us leave nothing out. In Genesis 28, uh, Alec, Pastor Alex said one of the greatest things to hear everybody flipping. Uh, one of the saddest things when you ask uh, to turn and you hear nobody flipping. <laughs> you know, you've lost the crowd at that point. <laughs> so hopefully I haven't lost you uh, just at the start here. Uh, Genesis 28. In verse 10, we pick it up. Now we're going back. This is in the Bible. You see God talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we're, this is an episode in Jacob's life. At this point, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac. He has not yet revealed himself to Jacob. We pick it up in verse 10. Jacob left, left Beersheba and went toward Haran. What is Jacob doing in his life? You may remember a little bit of the backstory of Jacob. Even if you do or don't, let's fill you in. Jacob had been promised, even though he was younger than his brother Esau, that he would be the heir of the family, that the older would serve the younger. However, he had to deceive his father to get that blessing. And his older brother, Esau, you remember he dressed up like Esau. He put hairy arms, and uh, him and his mom, Rachel, they, they come together, and they come up with a plan to go and, and, and kill venison close by and bring it in to, to fool the dad and make him think he was Esau. Well, the dad did bless him because he was deceived by Jacob. When Esau finds out that Jacob has stole the birthright, deceived his father, he wants to kill him, and he's coming to kill him. And so his mama says, they said, you're going to have to leave. Your brother is going to kill you. So here you have a man who was promised to be the heir of the family, run the whole shindig. Okay, was a big deal in his time, not only wealth, but to be the one in the family who would be known. Well, then he was promised it, but then he has to deceive to get it. And then all of a sudden it had to seem like all that had been stripped away from him. Because he, now he's running from home, never to see the one person who really loved him. That's his mother. He will never see her again. He has no friends. He is all alone. He has, as we're going to see, apparently no money. And you can see all his dreams seem to be in wake. I mean, how are these things going to happen? Uh, I know the prophecy, but how is this going to happen when my brother, who's stronger than me, wants me dead? And how am I ever going to get back home? So all his dreams seem to have ended. The nest that he had feathered, he had been dumped out of found that line in a commentary this week, and I thought it was pretty good. I was like, that's pretty cool. 
<clears throat> if only I was creative, come up with something. But so here he is, verse 11. He's leaving. He's going to another land that his parents had sent him off, his mother's kinfolk. Verse 11, he came to a certain place. Eh, this place doesn't have a name. It just seems to be totally accidental. And he stayed there that night because the sun had set. So we were going through Genesis. We saw that Moses, he, he didn't put anything in on accident. And here, why does he say that it was night and the sun had set? Why does he emphasize that? Because as surely as the darkness had set in, their darkness and depression and despair had set in on Jacob's heart and in his mind. And it says he took one of the stones of that place and he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, when would you ever use a rock to sleep on when you had nothing else to sleep on? Here, Jacob has nothing. Everything in his life, he's all alone. He has no possessions. Maybe a beast of burden, but he can't sleep on that. He doesn't have anything to roll up to put his head on, so he sleeps on a rock. Verse 12, and then he dreamed. Well, if you slept on a rock, you'd probably have a dream too, wouldn't you? <laughs> we would. He dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here's the Abrahamic covenant given to Jacob. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. Here God promises protection and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There's the dream. Verse 16, on the back end, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, what's the first thing that comes to his mind? Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He thought he was just at a random place as he's fleeing home. No plans, no idea where he was. But he said the Lord was in this place. Verse 17, and the house, verse 17, and he was afraid and he said, how awesome, one of your translations may say, how terrible is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took a stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar. He poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luzit at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, I will get and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. What are we to say about this dream? Well, if we go back and just think about the dream, what did Jacob see when he went to sleep? It was a ladder we have. I don't know if that's the best translation for this in my study. What I found, it, um, it, it seems to be like in the ancient Near East. Um, this same word was used by different people and cultures in this time. 
Um, the Egyptians used this same word, and it was to describe a ziggurat, if you will. But now I don't think that's what he saw here, but it, was, it had to be more than just what we think when a ladder... You know what a ziggurat is, maybe, maybe not. I didn't say cigarette, ziggurat. It, it, was a, it was a pyramid of sort, and, and it had steps on the side. And the Egyptians believed that's how their pharaoh would get into the heavens and become a deity and come back down to the people. Or when the pharaoh died, that's how he, they would bring him up to the top of that, hoping to reach the heavens. And, and different cultures had that same kind of thought. And this word here is, is, is some kind of paved way, some kind of bridge, gapping, heaven and earth. So that's what kind of thing we see here. And the angels, what's happening on this paved way, on this bridge? Angels are coming and going. Now, um, we should say a thing or two about the angels, shouldn't we? When's the last time in church you heard somebody talk about the angels? We, we, should, we should take just a minute to talk about the angels. Think about what we know about angels. That will first say this. When you think of angels, I, I tend to think of like um, Hallmark greeting card, prayer hands, sign... And then you take that and you go to the Bible and that's what you think of. No, 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 no. What's the first thing every time an angel appears in the Bible, what's the first thing he has to say? Fear not. not. Now, why would an angel have to say that? Because it must be scary to see an angel. If not, he wouldn't have to say, hey, don't be afraid. You're okay. You're not going to die. But what do they have to say every time? Fear not. Fear not. This is a terrifying thing to see angels, apparently. So well, that's one thing we know about it. But we know that from Genesis' account, Genesis 3, what does the angel do uh, at the garden? It guards, right? It guards. We know that angels communicate. Um, we know in Genesis 15 that the angel appeared to Abraham, uh, two angels, and apparently the angel of the Lord. And we see that in the story of Jesus' birth, that angels can communicate. We see that angels protect. Here, his promise and protection. Um, we see that angels can rescue like Lot in Genesis 17. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, what does Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says? Hebrews chapter 1 14 says angels are sent to minister to those who are being saved. You believe in angels? Now the stars in the heaven are angels. That's another subject for another sermon. We'll touch, talk about later, maybe Christmas time this year. But, but no doubt the Bible's clear that angels, and, and more than that, well, what is going on here in... Jacob's life. J Jacob thinks here in the, his darkness, grief, and his depression that God has left him. Now, you and I um, know things like this, how it is to be in despair and feel like God's not working and nowhere near us. But what it is, Jacob can't see until he dreams. And then he can see that God is in fact at work. God's messengers, God's angels are working on, on his behalf. Now, all that's preliminary. The most important thing in this dream and the text here just screams it. I want to show you. The most important thing in this dream is the Lord. Now, to start out in this dream, uh, in Hebrew, it's seven words. It starts out, there, uh, Behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. That's, that's seven words in Hebrew. And behold, the angels of the Lord ascending, descending. That's six words. And then getting even smaller to get to the point, just kind of zooming in, verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Four words in the Hebrew. This is why the Lord stood above it. Hey, there's words here that in this text that are repeated. And uh, one is standing. Um, if you look in verse 13, verse 12, this ladder was set up. This pave, this bridge was set up. It was, it was standing. And then you look on down, it says that the Lord is, is standing. 
And what does Jacob do in verse 18 with that rock? He stands it up vertical-wise. So what is standing, so this word standing is repeated in this dream. It's to point to what is standing at the top of this ladder, of this paved way, of this bridge. And, and the word top is used. In verse 3, this, uh, excuse me, verse 12, where is this ladder, what is it pointing to? The top of it reached the heaven. Uh, the word here in Hebrew for head, where he lays his head down on that rock, is the same word for the top, for the top of his body. And what does he do with that rock? What does he do with it in verse 18? He pours oil on the top of it. Everything in this text is pointing to what's at the top of this ladder. It's the Lord. What's the first thing that comes to Jacob's mind when he wakes up? Oh, what a cool ladder. Oh, the angels, I saw that. It's not the first thing that comes to his mind. What's the first thing he says when he wakes up? The Lord is in this place. That's the, that, that's the point of this dream is that God appeared to him. You know, I don't know about you, but I seem to think as I kind of read the old Genesis and the Old Testament, it seems like God appears to everybody in the Old Testament. Hey, has God, God physically appeared to any of y'all? Anybody? Like, I ain't raised my hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, maybe he has to, he's not appeared to me, but you know, we tend to think, well, in the Old Testament, he appeared to everybody. Well, no, he didn't. I mean, we get all this text that's covering, the book of Genesis covered thousands, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And the Old Testament covers thousands of years. And God just appeared. And we just seem to think God appeared to everybody. But this Old Testament crams all this time and God doesn't appear to everybody. Sure, Jacob had heard the story that God had appeared to Abraham. He'd sit around the campfire and heard those stories. But he himself, God had never appeared to him. He didn't expect God to appear to him. But here it happened. Here the Lord appeared to him. And the Lord made his covenant with him. The Lord made himself real to Jacob here at this place. And he called it Bethel. This is, I tell you, the word here, did you notice it as I, we were reading it? What word is repeated the most in this dream or in this account? The word place. The word place. Now you say, that's insignificant. No, it's not. You say, you're going up a trail. But I'm telling you, look at the passage. Verse 11, he came to a certain place, taking one of the stones of the place. He put it on his head, laid it down in the place to sleep. And then in the back of it, in verse 16, Jacob awoke and surely the Lord is in this place. Verse 17, he was afraid said, how awesome is this place? This place, this place. This was just an ordinary place. But yet now it had become a sanctuary. Why? Because this man, Jacob, who was a fugitive on the run, now becomes a pilgrim. Why? Because God appeared in that place. This is now a holy place. This now is just a rock. Now it's an altar. But let me just parenthetically say, I think what we need in our day and time in the, in the church is a new and a fresh understanding for holy places. That whole war going on right now in Israel and Gaza, all that started over argument about holy places. And we as Christians tend to see like there's nothing holy. Everything's just kind of the same. Everything's kind of mundane. But you know, the Bible teaches that one day is more important than the other days. No, every day is the Lord's day, but there is one day that is the Lord's day. We just read about the Christian Sabbath. That's why we're here on Sunday. There are people in the world and there are God's people. 
the church, God's people. And what, what makes this moment different than every other moment during your week? This is the moment when God's church gathers and God's word is preached and God is worshipped. Now, there's nothing holy about the geography of this place. It's not the windows, the pews, the pulpit. Where did we start out at, friends? At a golf course. That was pretty fun, wasn't it? We just started in a bowling alley. We just about had to start under a tree. We tried to start under anyhow you know the story. But any place where God's people meet on the Lord's day to hear the word preached as God communicates to his people is a holy moment. And friends, we have lost in our day and time, have we not lost just about all sense of that the gathering of God's people is holy and important. And I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians have lost that. But this place had become holy because God revealed himself here at Bethel. This was God's house. That's what Bethel means, God's house. He had seen God in the heavens, so God's house on earth was now, what did he say? The gate of heaven. Jacob knew at this place that he had saw God in heaven. Therefore, this place at Bethel, this geographical location, he said is now the house of God. Why? Because God's glory was shown to him here. God's glory was there. But let's go through the Old Testament as we see. Turn with me to Exodus 13. Exodus 13. In Exodus 13, God has rescued his people out of Egypt and he tells them to take um, this ark, to build an ark, no, not to the ark yet, excuse me. That as he took them out of the land of Egypt and he took them through the desert to the promised land, the Lord was with his people with a cloud by day and a fire by night. The glory of God was shown to them. Look with me in verse 20. Verse 21. And the Lord, in Exodus 13, and the Lord went before them day by day. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from the people. God was with His glory. He was shining. He was protecting His people, just as He had promised Jacob. And now here, in God's grace, he had rescued his people, redeemed them, ransomed them by the, the blood of the Lamb, and now he was with them. God's glory was with them. Turn to ch uh, chapter 25 in Exodus, verse 8. In chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord is talking to Moses, and he now is talking about setting up the tabernacle and how that's supposed to look. Look at verse 8, Exodus 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Everywhere the Israel went throughout the desert, the temple was there. Uh, the tabernacle, it was just a tent, but it was a glorious tent, was in the middle of the tribes when they set it up. And it, it not only symbolized, it was the presence of God amidst his people. In verse 22 of Exodus 25, we go in verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. He talks about this ark that they were to build. And above it talked about the angels, the cherubim that were to be beside it. 
Verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. There I will meet with you. Here God is going to meet with His people in this tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, the angels that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God met with His people in the wilderness, in the Holy of Holies. He met with them there in the tabernacle. Turn with me now to Ezekiel, which is a few flips on past the book of Psalms. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Oh, I don't hear many pages. I've lost most of them. It's okay. You just, if you just want to listen, that's fine as well. In Ezekiel chapter 10, in Ezekiel to chapter 12, we're not going to read it all. I'm just going to hit a few verses here. Ezekiel sees a vision in the history of Israel. This is after David and Solomon. The kingdom has split into a northern kingdom. And then Israel, the two tribes, now they have become great nations. But they had been taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians into captivity. They were now slaves in a foreign land. And Ezekiel writes to them and said, he saw this coming. In verse 4 of chapter 10, he said, The glory of the Lord. He's looking down in this vision. He sees the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim. The threshold of the house was filled with the cloud. The court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. Look at verse 18. In other words, he said, I've seen the glory of God in the temple where God said it was going to be. And then in verse 18, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold to the house and stood over the cherubim. Now he goes out and from the house and he's standing over the angels. In chapter 11, and then to verse 22, the cherubim lifted up their wings. Now these angels are flying with wheels beside them. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that's on the east side of the city. The glory of God went out to the east. The glory of God went out. You may find it interesting to note in the New Testament, if you'll turn with me back to John chapter 1, that Jesus in His triumphal entry, He comes through the east gate. That He stands on the Mount of Olives with all of that in the background. Jesus comes and He tells them. Jesus looks at Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I've scratched my head this week trying to figure out what he meant by that. What did he mean that, Nathaniel, you will see the angels? Now that we know the backstory of Genesis 28, we talked about angels. Think about the angels in Jesus' ministry. We see the angels at his birth, don't we? Coming to Mary and to Joseph and to Zechariah, these angels. I think there's a new movie coming out this year about Mary. I don't know the angels coming out. It looks kind of funky. Uh, but anyhow, there, you know, there's angels in the true narrative of the birth of Jesus. And then what else the angels say? In the temptation of Jesus, the angels ministered to him. And then at the death of Christ, Jesus said, I could stop all of this and call a whole legion of angels. Angels are at the resurrection of Christ. They're at the tomb when the women come to the tomb. They're at His ascension in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus turned to the heaven and the angels looked at the disciples and said, hey, what y'all doing standing around here? He went to heaven. He's going to come back one day the same way He went up. Go, go, go get to it. We see the angels all over. But is that what He's talking about here? 
Well, he also, I think he means a little more than that. He says, you'll see the heavens open. Where do we see the heavens open in Jesus' ministry? At his baptism, God speaks. This is my son who I'm well pleased. Same thing at the transfiguration when they see Jesus on the mount. They see him transformed and his whiteness, his divinity is shining like a bright light before him. And Peter says, oh, what should we do? Should we build some tents and tabernacles here? And God says, Peter, will you be quiet for a minute? Just calm down. This is my son. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Heaven's open. But where else do the disciples and the whole world 2,000 years ago see heavens open? They seen the heavens open when Jesus was on the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. But for three hours of the six that Jesus was on the cross, it was dark. What did heaven open upon him? The same writer John in 1 John chapter 2 says Jesus became the propitiation. I know it's a big word, maybe the most important word in all the Bible. He became a propitiation for our sins. That means he took the wrath of heaven. On the cross, heaven was open, and it was wrath that came down on Jesus. And what is Jesus saying? What, what did he say here to Nathaniel? He said, Nathaniel, you will see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on me. He's saying, I am Bethel. I, it, it comes on me. I am the ladder. I am the bridge. What would he say in John 14? Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do we have access to heaven? It's only through Jesus and Jesus alone. You know, God is transcendent. You think about the God of this universe. I, I remember reading a statistic, and I was able to find it this week. Um, they say if if you were to take the distance between here and the sun, I think it's 93 million miles, something like that, if that was represented by the thickness of one piece of paper, okay, that makes sense, then if you were to take the distance between here, Earth, and the nearest star, that would be 50 feet of paper. And if you were to take the distance between here and the next galaxy, that would be like 300 feet a stack of paper. And Fran, this galaxy is just one of millions. Our God created all of that. That's a big God. That's a transcendent God. Alex, Pastor, you were talking about this morning. How God is above. He's supernatural, he was saying. He's above nature. Wow! But Jesus is saying, John is saying, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Where do we have access to God? He became, no, he's transcendent. He became imminent. He walked this world in Jesus Christ. He's imminent, but he's also graceful. How graceful. Think about Jacob's story. Jacob had nothing. Jacob wasn't on a journey to find God. Jacob didn't say, all right, mom and dad, hope you have a good life. I'm going to go find God. He wasn't looking for God. He was looking to escape for his life. God found. What about Moses in the burning bush? Was Moses out in the wilderness? Hey, I think maybe I'll find God out here. No. He was out there minding his own business. What about these fishermen? Were they looking for God? Were they looking for the Messiah? Are they looking for the king? No, they were out there casting their nets. And he comes along and goes, hey, come here. Follow me. God, in his grace, 
came down. They found access to God. That's what Jesus is getting at when he said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. How does that hit you this morning, I wonder? Each of you individually. How does that hit you? In this text, and we didn't read it all, but up above, you look in John chapter 1, verse 39, as John the Baptist points at Jesus, and he says, follow him. And two of the disciples of John the Baptist go to follow him. And they come up to Jesus and they say, uh, hey, Rabbi. And Jesus says, what is it that you're seeking? And they said, hey, where are you staying at? That's interesting. They could ask Jesus, said, hey, what do you want? Well, if you were to talk to Jesus, what's the first question you're going to ask him? Well, they said, where are you staying at? That seems like an odd thing to say, but really it's a pretty smart thing. You know all the genie in the bottle thing? Like if you rub the genie in the bottle, you get three wishes in Aladdin, right? But what's one of the rules with Aladdin? You can't ask for more wishes, right? Well, all, well, that's what they do with Jesus here. They go, Jesus, actually, we don't just want one thing. We want to spend all night with you so we can ask you a bunch of questions. Smart guys, right? I mean, probably smarter than your average fisherman here. Uh, and, and so that's a good move. Well, Jesus answers when they want to go see He says, Come and see. Maybe some of you are this morning at that place with God. Or yet, you're at the place, if you had to be honest, you're just wanting, you're just coming and finding out what it's about, what Jesus is about. And that's okay. You know, sometimes we share the gospel with people and we expect them to accept and surrender right then and there. And that's great. We should. The Bible's clear. Today's the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. Life is like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. You're not promised the next breath. Life is short, so you should consider that. The Bible says, come and see. Come ask your questions. One time I uh, had to, got to have a conversation with a Muslim who was um, from Europe, and he was uh, had come to America. And as I was talking to him, he said, I'm looking for truth. I said, don't give that up. I said, the Bible claims to be truth. Jesus claims to be the truth. And I said, if you're looking for truth, like you say you are, and Jesus says he is the truth. Why don't you put it to the test? Yeah. Why don't you put it to the test? Why don't you come and see? Why don't you look at the confessions of the church? Why don't you look at what Jesus said? Look at the resurrection of Christ. And if he's Lord, well, then you're going to have to surrender. The Bible claims to be true. And if it is true, then all the others are not true. And here's what you'll find. If you're coming and seeing, this is how we should share with people. You're coming and seeing, you'll find a humble God. You'll find a humble Christ. What did they say? What did Philip say? You, they come to uh, Nathaniel, excuse me, Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, you said where? He's from Nazareth. He's the son of who? Joseph. Do you think that was a good thing to go around saying? Hey, where are you from? I'm from Nazareth. I'm from the bad side of the tracks. Uh, you wouldn't want to tell people that. You also wouldn't want to tell people your daddy was Joseph. Because what did every, it's a small town. You know how small town people talk? What did everybody know about Joseph and Mary? We think about the Christmas story and we think, oh, how great, Joseph and Mary. What did they think about Joseph and Mary? They were dishonored. They thought Mary had been disloyal to Joseph and instead Joseph didn't divorce her like he should have. He decided to marry this adulteress. And now he's dishonored and shamed too. So go around telling people, hey, Joseph's my daddy was not a good move for fame. And that I'm from Nazareth. Not only is he from the wrong side of the tracks, not only is he from a dishonored family, but he's also from a poor family. When they took Jesus to the temple, what did they give as a sacrifice? Pigeons. That's the, that's the lowest of offering people could give to God. That was for the poorest of the poor. 
Mary and Joseph were poor. Jesus from the wrong side of the tracks, from a poor and dishonored family. And he didn't come as a philosopher, a general, or a king, did he? He come as a what? Carpenter. Humble. And he humbled himself to serve, didn't he? He said, I come not to be served, but I come to serve. And he humbled himself to death and death on a cross because he loved his own. You'll find a Jesus who's humble. And you know, friend, if you're going to become a Christian, you have to humble yourself. You know, we went to Jacob in Genesis 28, and, and that story, God comes down. Here, Jesus is looking at them and saying, you know the tabernacle when Jesus is with you and all that? The glory departed. I am the glory of God. John 1 says, we beheld his glory. Jesus saying, it's me. I'm God right in front of you. I am the Lord in Genesis 28 that Jacob saw. He saw me, and now you're talking to me, Nathaniel. You're talking to that God right now. And if you're going to become a Christian, you, you remember the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11? It was the opposite of Genesis 28. The story of Babel was, we're going to build a, a staircase so high, a tower so high, we're going to get to God and make our name great. God comes down and confuses them, right? That's no go because that's not how this works. God says the only way you get grace, the only way you become one of mine is I come to you and you have to come to me on my terms. My terms. So you must humble yourself. The Bible says you're saved by faith. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Let's end it right there in John chapter 3. Would you turn with me there to John 3, verse 12? John 3, verse 12. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and we're a couple weeks away from this, but we'll cheat just a little bit. And, hey, don't go reading the Gospel of John in front of us now. Don't you do it. Don't go home and read the Gospel of John. I used to tell a college kid, don't you go read Song of Solomon. Don't you do it. You're not, you're not mature enough. Just so they'd all go do it. You know. um, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, remember he's talking Nicodemus, the religious ruler of the Pharisees, their preacher. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I wish we had more time to do the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And we will. I know as you read through this passage, some of you are pretty frustrated. He didn't talk about the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King. I know, I know. Messiah, I know, calm down. We're going to get there, I promise you. We've got a whole book to develop those things, and John's going to develop them. So just stay seated. It's going to be good. But he says, as Jacob saw God at the top of that ladder, Jesus saying, no one's come down but the Son of Man. The Lord has come down, and I'm here. And what does he connect to his coming? Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What did he connect to his coming to Jacob's ladder? That he had to die. That he had to be exalted. How would that be by the cross? Friend, how is it that someone goes upon the bridge of Jesus to heaven? It's by faith and faith alone. It can't be. A, think about how foolish it would be if it would be of works. What if God would? What if Jesus would have come and said, "Hey, Nathaniel, I'm going to show you where Bethel really is, and when I show it to you, I'm going to give you five pillars like Islam gives you." Or I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments like Judaism gave you. Or I'm going to give you Buddha's eightfold way to nirvana. 
He didn't do that, did he? Because that's not the way. There's nothing you can do. That's where you have to humble yourself and understand there's nothing you can do because you mess everything up, and I do too. There's nothing you can do. But And think of this. How cruel would God the Father be if he sent his son to be crucified the way he was and then say, yeah, but that's not enough. You've got to do some stuff too. As if that was not enough. The Bible makes it clear what Jesus did was more than enough. He was lifted up. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Bow our heads and pray with me this morning. Father, thank You for the blood applied. Thank You that Jesus is the ladder. And that as Your angels minister to us, they do so because we are Your redeemed and we are only redeemed through Your Son. Father, thank you that you came down, that the fullness of glory dwelled in Christ, and that here we stand as your people. The Bible says, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that we are, in fact, your temple. And our life should be lived in light of that. As Jesus called Philip and said, follow me, we need to remember the call to follow you. That means we had to leave things to follow you. Let us remember the priority of you in our life, that you are our Lord and our Savior. Father, I pray you would use this sermon. Glorify yourself with it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website, harvestbc.church. If you would like to contact us, please email us at contact.harvestbc at gmail.com or you can call us at 706-780-2211. If you are looking for a church home or visiting the North Georgia area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday morning. 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall for breakfast and Sunday school, and then at 11 a.m. for our Lord's Day worship service. We hope that you have a great week. God bless.